Well, kia ora tātou. Uh, my name's Jock Phillips, and it's, I must say I've, I've, it gives me enormous pleasure to be the chair of the session today uh, for a number of reasons. One, because uh, both Sean and Chris are very good old friends of mine with whom I've spent many hours trudging up impossibly high hills and enjoying that brief moment of ecstasy on the top, which I guess is what uh, trampers live for. Um, and also because uh, they were last year the uh, major winners of the New Zealand Awards in History, which is uh, a grant scheme from the History Group, um, and have both themselves come from this year's New Zealand Book Awards, where Sean, with his fellow authors, actually won, what was it, the Illustrated? The Booksellers Award, yeah. Yeah, the Booksellers, but the Booksellers Award, very good. Um, they come, I must say, to this topic with great qualifications, the most important of which, of course, is knowing the ecstasy and pain of being a New Zealand tramper, um, and also the great experience as writers and historians. Uh, Chris has done, I don't know how many books, about a dozen books, uh, began with two outstanding books, one on stained glass windows and one on <laughs> war memorials, um, and then started to explore areas around the Kapiti coast, very nice books on Kapiti, on Waikanae, um, on the Tararuas, did an excellent biography of uh, John Pascoe, and uh, has most recently done a stunning little book um, on Stag Spooner. Great story about Stag Spooner himself and wonderful, wonderful illustrations by, Spooner, so, by Stag Spooner. So I'm sure you all know of, of Chris's um, achievements in the historical area. Sean comes with a background not only as a dedicated tramper and has written a whole series of guides to tramping, good tramping trips in New Zealand. He did a wonderful book, must have been about 10 years ago now, Classic Tramping, one of the Craig Potton series, which is, uh, I must say, one of the classic books of, of New Zealand, wonderful book. And his recent book, the one that has just won the prize, is called Shelter from the Storm, which is a, a beautiful and loving study of tramping huts in New Zealand. So as you can see, with a historical and tramping background, they're superbly uh, fitted to talk today on their uh, project, uh, History of Tramping. So it's over to you, Chris. Thank you. And uh, thank you, Jock, for that generous introduction. Uh, as I think will become apparent today in our presentation, um, Jock has had quite an influence on the shape and the content of our work, and we're very grateful to you for that. Thank you, Jock. What we'd like to do today is talk a little bit about the process we've been through in putting together this book, how we sort of wrote it together, some of the ideas we explored, and where we've got to, a sort of snapshot of where we are in the final furlong. And our uh, idea of a history of tramping in New Zealand evolved in 2008 while walking around uh, Lake Waikariiti in Te Irawera National Park. This lovely landscape has been associated with the history of New Zealand tramping from its beginnings. 
William Colenso, arguably New Zealand's first tramper, walked through the Urawera in 1841-42 on his way from the Bay of Islands to Hawke's Bay. At Waikaremoana, he engaged in stormy theological debate on the lake shore uh, with a local Catholic priest, much to the amusement of local Māori. He also explored and botanised the local ranges nearby. While Colenso's primary purpose was evangelical, his love of walking, his, especially his later multiple crossings of the Ruahine Range, make him a candidate for the, the title of the nation's first real tramper. But others soon followed. In 1907, for example, the young writer Catherine Mansfield spent four weeks exploring Te Uruera, and the sense of the area's rich Māori heritage inflamed her imagination, and this is very evident in her diary of the trip. She was followed by Victoria College students like John Beaglehole in the early 1920s, who also tramped Te Uruera. Their experience was influential, particularly for Beagle Hole later when he was living in England and he thought about the New Zealand bush, and when he did so, he thought about that trip in the Urawera. More recently, Te Urawera has been the inspiration for the first academic appraisal of tramping in New Zealand by Kirsty Ross, a curator at Te Papa. She walked around the lake as a teenager, and this later inspired her interest in the subject, which culminated in her 2008 publication, Going Bush. And of course, Lake Waikaremoana and Te Ruera National Park continue to lie at the heart of any appraisal of tramping in New Zealand today, because of the recent treaty settlement with Tuhoi. In fact, Tuhoi didn't sign the treaty in the first instant, instance and have really remained an independent tribe within New Zealand, but an appalling history of persecution, starvation and governmental abuse culminated in last year's seminal settlement. This has had profound consequences for tramping in New Zealand as for the first time a national park may be returned to a local iwi or has been returned to a local iwi to be managed in conjunction with dock in a way is, which is yet to be defined. But already this has made John Key quite nervous, and he's changed his mind a couple of times on this issue. So it'll be interesting to see how this uh, phase of our history unfolds in the near future. But there are positive signs. Federation Mountain Clubs, for example, have already had uh, quite promising discussions with Tuhoi. Um, now, the FMC formed in 1931, and that was after a decade of very intensive uh, club formation. And that began with the formation of the Tararua Tramping Club in 1919. This was the first formal use of the word tramping, which comes from the, word, the German word trampen, to mean to walk heavily. And the Tararua Tramping Club was the first really successful club. And it, supply, it, it's, it uh, inspired many others to emulate an example. And they adopted, the other ones all around New Zealand, adopted its uh, sort of structure, its constitution and its protocols. As we walked through Te Urawera, Sean and I discussed the subsequent development of tramping in New Zealand, which boomed in the 1930s as a form of cheap recreation in hard times. We also talked about the uh, effect of the Second World War, where women came to the fore and kept the clubs going, and some of the men left at home were fortunate enough to be selected to join the elite Army Bush Guides. This unit, which was intended to guide uh, the US Marines through the local landscape, um, included John Pascoe, a keen young tramper and writer. 
After the war, PASCO, who took that previous photograph and many others of those wartime activities, wrote this survey, Land Uplifted High, of New Zealand tramping areas at a time when the pastime flourished and became increasingly popular as greater prosperity and uh, broader or greater car ownership made access to the outdoors far easier. Many returned servicemen and women found rejuvenation in the hills at a time when the state built a network of huts and tracks for deer colours employed to control the plague of these animals, released in the 19th century in a bid to make New Zealand an egalitarian Antipodean game park. But the advent of helicopter hunting in the 1960s made this hut and truck track network redundant and instead it was developed by the New Zealand Forest Service for recreation. And the deer colour became a sort of cultural icon, an emblem of Kiwi outdoor schools at a time when many New Zealanders were living in cities and looking to the outdoors for recreation. At the same time, the continuing heroic exploits of Ed Hillary, first on Everest, then in Antarctica and elsewhere, convinced Kiwis who basked in his success that they too were outdoors people. But we asked the question, were they really? And in fact, it seems that this was largely a delusion. Most Kiwis were now living in urban areas, and while a uh, growing number did tramp, hunt and fish, they were always a minority. Nevertheless, this active minority were generously provided for by not one, but two government departments that created the most extensive network for recreational purposes of huts and tracks in the world. So here we see a forest service hut under construction, but exactly the same sort of thing was happening at the same time uh, under the Lands and Survey Department in national parks, such as here in uh, Mount Aspiring National Park created in 1964. So this remarkably uh, extensive and egalitarian network uh, was open to all, except that in one or two places the um, state was still uh, providing exclusive accommodation and experience for people, most notably on the Milford Track. So while the um, Milford Track lay within a national park, in fact uh, access was limited to paying clients of the exclusive tourist department. I was intrigued to learn from Sean that in the 1960s, Otago Tramping Club members invaded the Milford Track to make it accessible for everyone. And those invaders called themselves Freedom Walkers, taking inspiration from the American Civil Rights Movement. <laughs> and such uh, influence was undoubtedly due to the advent of television. The 1960s and the 1970s were a time of rapid change as television and greatly improved air transport, air transport connected global communities as never before. So as we continued our tramp through Te Urawera, Sean and I discussed how the developments of mass tourism changed life in the great Kiwi outdoors. So much so that by the 1990s, some of New Zealand's finest tramping landscapes were becoming very popular with tourists from afar especially Germans and Israelis. This trend continued in the new century, culminating in Doc's Great Walks, which sought to accommodate this ever-increasing influx. The Kepler Track, for example, was specifically created as an alternative to the Milford Track to help cope with this tourist influx. 
But while an underfunded dock struggled to cope with mass tourism, other state agencies such as Tourism New Zealand relentlessly promoted New Zealand abroad with campaigns such as the contentious 100% pure one, which continued to attract more and more visitors to these shores. This reached its zenith with Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings and Hobbit trilogies, which brought even greater numbers of active young tourists to New Zealand to experience the landscapes they'd seen depicted in these films. Having talked all this through, we returned to civilization and created an outline chapter by chapter of the book that we int intended to write. The opportunity actually to do so came in December 2011 when we received an award in history. This was sufficient to allow each of us to work full time for a year on the book. But first we gave our synopsis to two friends, uh, fellow historians, for their appraisal. And it was a very good thing that we did because our complacent sense that we had kind of nailed uh, an outline of the book that would be convincing was soon shown to be unwarranted. Jock Phillips, the first to respond, challenged our assumption that the history of tramping began with the Tararua Club in 1919. He did a brief search of papers passed in the 19th century, just using that term, uh, and that revealed quite a response. So he suggested we needed to take a much closer look at the 19th century and the diversity of meanings that came uh, with that word tramping. What about the gold prospectors, for example, and the surveyors and the soldiers? And at the same time, uh, Graham Langton, our mutual friend, an Alpine historian, uh, had also looked at it and he took us to task for similar omissions. He too thought that we had ignored the 19th century, especially the contribution of Māori, who had facilitated so much of the early European exploration. Graham also challenged us to think rather harder about our definition of tramping and what was special or unique about the New Zealand experience of this. So we got stuck into papers past, which enabled us to trace the development of the term tramping through the 19th and early 20th centuries. And this showed that its modern recreational meaning in New Zealand uh, followed on from the more widespread use of the word in the 19th century to represent soldiers marching, horses galloping, dancers reeling, and gold prospectors walk walking through the mountains. Its use in a recreational sense came much earlier than we had imagined, or dictionaries had indicated, and we found it used as early as the 1870s, 50 years before its use for the Tararua Tramping Club. So clearly quite an overlap there, but there was also other factors that were at play as well. This use in the 1870s and, and after that coincided with a time when Vogel's uh, new railways and roads were enabling New Zealanders to reach scenic landscapes far more easily. And at the same time, our perceptions of the landscape were beginning to change towards a more romantic view from the idea that mountains and the bush were something to be avoided and were impediment towards the idea that these were inspiring places. So chastened, and rightly so, for our less than rigorous intellectual inquiry and our failure to test assumptions, we now rapidly re-researched our book and then wrote it. Now this diagram uh, represents the broad outline of the book we have written and to us um, it's quite an intelligible uh, depiction of what we were trying to explain about the diversity of 19th century sources uh, of the word tramping and equally a postmodern diversification at the other end. But with uh, 
when we sent the book out to uh, readers in draft form, we found that virtually none of them found this intelligible. So <laughs> we'd be very interested to know um, it, uh, later on in, in this discussion um, what you feel about it and whether we need to do some more work on it. In essence, the first part of our history is entitled Walking with a Purpose, and it describes that sort of 19th century utilitarian uh, use of tramping, or the term tramping. And then the second part of the book is an account of the evolution of what we've called traditional tramping, and that was largely dominated by tramping clubs. And then, as I say, we've got this postmodern diversity uh, of experience that are now loosely termed tramping, but cover quite a, a wide range of experiences. So having two authors um, is a great advantage in the sense that you don't have to write the whole book yourself. On the other hand, there's quite a challenge in uh, forming a sort of successful collaborative style. And we're quite different people, so we were faced with this challenge of how, having to meld the behaviours of a well-known Luddite who writes in longhand with a younger person who's almost a digital native. <laughs> in fact, these... Uh, that particular issue uh, was immaterial because what we did was we wrote alternating chapters, so that didn't really matter. Uh, the thing that did give us a lot more uh, of a challenge was writing to a predetermined uh, world, uh, word limit because uh, we decided that um, we needed to limit chapters to 7,000 words each so that the book that we produced would be of a length that would enable it to be published in a way uh, and at a price that we felt comfortable with. So while we both struggled at times to stay within the agreed limit of 7,000 words per chapter, uh, we, we found that by editing each other's drafts we could whittle down chapters into far clearer and more convincing texts. Even so, we ended up with a 12-chapter book of uh, 108,000 words, um, which is 300 pages of this double typescript, or double-spaced typescript, and that theoretically should shake down to a 300-page uh, illustrated published volume. So what did we learn from this collaborative experience? Well, first and rather obviously, if you're going to write a book, then you have to write it. So what we found was a lot of people would say to us, well, you're doing a book about tramping in New Zealand. Gee, you know, you must be doing a lot of tramping. It must be a lot of fun. But in fact, we did very little tramping. Uh, we were quite ruthless about that. And um, the only way we did any tramping was, um, in the end, Sean persuaded me to do one overnight trip into the North Ohau hut in the uh, Tararuas on the excuse that we'd taken uh, drafts with us and, and of specimen chapters we'd been working on and, and checked them over there. So we did that, but then when we'd finished the book, we celebrated with a tramp in the uh, Ruahines, following in the footsteps of William Colenso, and on the summit of Te Atua o Mahuru, um, we split up and walked in different directions. So Sean went north along this magnificent uh, mist-edged ridge into the distance. He was due to talk to the uh, Heratonga Tramping Club in Hastings the following night. So he went that way. I went uh, west, and as soon as he disappeared, I took off all my clothes and spent the afternoon enjoying a wonderful new tramp along the Ruahine Tops. <laughs> Undoubtedly, a two-author process like this could go horribly wrong and lead to <laughs> a broken friendship or no book, uh, or maybe just a bad book. 
but that, that was something we knew we couldn't allow to happen. We both recognised that a $60,000 grant from the Ministry of Culture and Heritage was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity and we really had to succeed not just for ourselves and our sense of professionalism, but also because, just as importantly, there are people like you, other researchers and historians who could have put that money to good use. We're currently illustrating our Tramping History, which will be published next year. And the key points we wish to communicate are, and we'd welcome your thoughts on this, first of all, the highly personal nature of Tramping. We learnt this just recently when we sent out these seven uh, drafts to selected readers uh, for their comment. And a ma majority of the, their responses were highly personal, surprisingly so. These were people we'd selected for their kind of broad qualifications to provide us with a general overview, but a lot of them came back and they were so determined that their own personal experience was replicated in our book that one or two of them became quite edgily personal about it. So this was quite a surprise, as I say, but it led us to think, well, what's going on here? We looked beyond that and said, okay, there's something about tramping that is, we haven't really con you know, got involved with. So we thought about what is the essence of the tramping experience, and so I said to Sean, um, let's write down uh, a sort of 10, uh, 10 little things that we think are important about the nature of tramping. So that's exactly what we did. And you can see here, we've um, categorised them into P for personal and G for more general societal uh, experiences. Now, obviously, you'll have your own uh, list as well. But first of all, we found that there was quite a uh, correlation between the two lists. And more interestingly, 80% um, of them are what I would call, or we would call, personal uh, satisfaction. So it made us realise that while it's something that you do with other people and it takes you into the outdoors, a lot of it is to do with yourself and certainly we'd almost made an error in choosing two or three people for, as readers for whom tramping had been so personally transformative that actually they weren't that good as feedback because really as I said earlier they wanted to see their own experience replicated. So there's that very personal aspect to tramping and then there's a, a rather more um, uh, collective experience, or well not experience, but aspect to tramping, particularly in New Zealand, and that's the overwhelming involvement of the state. Now this began um, in the 1890s uh, with the fostering of the, uh, or the development of the Milford track as a tramping track, and it's gone on to the present day. It's sort of ebbed and flow over time, but it broadly the history of tramping and the state's involvement reflects the over, overall history of New Zealand. So for example in the 1890s with the election of the Liberal government and all of its uh, innovative interventions in New Zealand society we see that the tramping is very much part of that and we get the first uh, tourist and health resorts department started in 1900, the first one anywhere in the world to promote outdoor recreation and tourism. And then again in the 1930s there's another surge in state uh, promotion when we have um, Bill Parry and the, and the Labour government promoting mountaineering, and tr or not mountaineering, tramping as one of a suite of other outdoor activities to increase the health of the nation and to get people, working class people, uh, into the outdoors. And then of course after the Second World War, um, when the state's sort of dominance of all aspects of New Zealand life was so uh, obvious, the same thing happened in the outdoors. So that was the time when the Forest Service and the Lands and Survey Department uh, started that or, or developed uh, to such a great extent that extraordinary network of huts and tracks. 
And this continues, of course, today. We still have that network and we still have a very active state in the form of the Department of Conservation promoting and dealing with tramping. So uh, our third conclusion uh, that we've come to about tramping in New Zealand is basically that these sustained efforts by the state, and of course we mustn't also neglect the extraordinary contribution made by tramping clubs in the development of, of huts and tracks and so on, uh, combined with a magnificent uh, range of um, inspiring landscapes, has led us to conclude that New Zealand offers some of the finest tramping anywhere in the world. And we say that because not only is there the most striking scenery, but also the best hut and trap network, uh, a small population, no dangerous wild animals or poisonous snakes or toxic spiders, good access, 14 national parks, 19 forest parks, 10 conservation parks, and no entry fees. So around these attributes, a uniquely New Zealand culture of tramping has developed, reflecting much broader uh, social and national characteristics. We hope that our book will provide a convincing account of how all this has come about. Thank you.